and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hi, welcome to Baha'i Blogcast with me, your host, Rain Wilson. I have a really exciting guest for you to listen to today. I'm so excited to have her on this weird little show. Tierney Sutton is here. She is jazzy. She's so jazzy. <laughs> You're making me mad now, Rain. I know. She said, she said earlier, don't use the word jazzy. Please don't say jazzy. You can say jazz or jazz-like, but don't say jazzy. <laughs> so I called her jazzy. Um, she is, in case you don't know, the world of jazz. She's a legend in the jazz community. She's a seven-time Grammy nominee. She's gotten six consecutive nominations for just Best Jazz Vocal Album. And um, her most recent is for Paris Sessions, which has been called a vocal tour de force and devastatingly intimate. She did a great album called After Blue that is a jazz reimagining of Joni Mitchell. Uh, She's also done, you did a Frank Sinatra-themed jazz album, right? Yep. And other artists that you've... That you've covered in your in your well, work, like more. Uh, most of the other albums were concept albums um, that had themes, like happiness, one of them, or the pursuit thereof, and then then uh, one called desire, uh, which was the theme was materialism actually, and the idea that we want things, and some of them are good, and some of them are not so good. Well, that's fantastic. You so you. You've got this band, and we'll talk about your band a little bit later because there's some interesting conversations to be had about about you and your band and that history. But tell me about these theme albums. It sounds like there um, there's some spiritual ideas behind uh, yeah. a jazz album. How do you come up with that, and what what's that like? Well, you know, I think it's one of the things, and and you and I have talked about it in the past um, that in in the life of an actor you kind of have, you're at the mercy of people writing things for you and inviting you to be a part of them. And you pick the best ones and you're at a place in your career where you get some really good ones. But I bet they're kind of few and far between because the way the world functions is not, uh, let's just say, so healthy these days. And what people crave is not necessarily the food they need. Uh, Jazz is a little bit of an oasis in that. And I got to say that my peers in the jazz world are constantly doing projects that have spiritual themes and it's not weird in my world. And so the album Desire actually begins with me reciting hidden words uh, and then going into a very moody version of the Mercer Harold Arlen tune Paper Moon. Oh, it's only a paper moon Mm. sailing over a cardboard sea, but it wouldn't be make-believe if you believed. O son of being, busy not thyself with this world, for with fire we test the gold, and with gold we test our servants. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't say in me, but that's you know, but the me that I'm right. saying is in God. It's not in, you know. So it's kind of the the illusion of existence. It's kind of exactly. Maya in the in the Buddhist tradition of the paper moon being yeah. the physical world that we're surrounded by. Right. And what I did was, um, and when I started the project, I thought I can't just be reciting the hidden words. I can't just recite hidden words. And so literally when I was on tour with the band, I took things from the Dhammapada and the Bhagavad Gita and the New Testament and the Old Testament. But you know how Baha'u'llah says that he's cloaked it with in the garment of brevity and he's taken these the inner essence of spiritual truth and made it into the hidden words. They're so concise mm. that I could not find anything that had the kind of poetry and precision yeah. of those writings mm-hmm. about um, the desire for material things. And it's funny what the, the the other spiritual writings that do have that conciseness are the poets that uh, the Persian poets that Baha'u'llah and Abdul Baha and the Bab and Shoghi Effendi read and loved so much, right. like Hafez right, right, and right. Rumi, and they are able to also cloak these really complicated spiritual ideas in these beautiful. Right. Poems. Yeah. There's your next album. Boom. No. Got your next album hey, for you. No, I've, I've been talking about doing a Rumi or Hafez album for a long time, but uh, it was interesting because I bent over backwards for uh, about a year trying to use things that were not the hidden words. And I remember uh, the guys in the band said, no, use those. It feels the best when you use those. When, you know, oh, son of being. Um, and did you say them? I did. I, re- I recite mm-hmm. them. The first minute of the album yeah. is the band playing this moody stuff and me reciting hidden words. Mm, two beautiful. hidden words. And actually, originally there were three and I decided two was enough. But a full 60 seconds of this album, the beginning of the album, is me reciting the creative word. And and I wanted that it to be the creative word. So if it wasn't going to be uh, the hidden words or the words of Baha'u'llah, I, I wanted it to be a source book of a major faith. I wanted it to be the Bhagavad Gita. I wasn't going to Hafez and Rumi. Not that I don't love them. It's just that I wanted the manifestations. I wanted the words of the manifestations. And turned out that Baha'u'llah was the cat and that was it. And so I was, when, when, when we got nominated for a Grammy for that album, I was so over the moon because I thought, okay, the nearest voters listened to an album that starts with 60 seconds of me reciting the creative word and ends with uh, another uh, hidden word, and then I sing Skylark. And when I sing Skylark in a concert, I usually recite the beginning of the Tablet of Ahmad and explain to the audience that the meaning of Skylark, the, the imagery that Johnny Mercer uses is exactly the same as Hafez and Rumi and Baha'u'llah use in talking about the person of the manifestation of God. Um, what is what is that imagery? Like, what are some of the lyrics? Well, okay, so look at it this way. In the imagery of the Persian poets and, uh, and Baha'u'llah, the heart is the lover and God is the beloved. It's like mm-hmm. the beloved is capital B yep. and the lover is you. Yeah, You're it's... singing to your beloved, okay? Mm-hmm. O son of desire, how long wilt thou soar in the realms of desire? Wings have I bestowed upon thee, that thou mayest fly to the realms of mystic holiness. Now, the person that, or the being that 
tells you of the reality of the Beloved with the capital B is the Nightingale or the Skylark. Skylark. the imagery. So Jesus, mm. the, the Buddha, mm -hmm. Baha'u'llah, the Bab, all of these beings were nightingales that were singing. In dark times. Uh, yeah, in dark times to the heart of human beings saying, this is where God is. Okay, so this is the lyric of Skylark. Skylark, have you anything to say to me? Can you tell me where my love can be? Is there a meadow in the mist? where someone's waiting to be kissed. Oh, Skylark, have you seen a valley green with spring where my heart can go a-journeying over the shadows and the rain to a blossom-covered lane? And in your lonely flight, haven't you heard the music in the night? Wonderful music, faint as a will-o'-the-wisp, crazy as a loon, sad as a gypsy serenading the moon. Oh, Skylark, I don't know if you can find these things, but my heart is riding on your wings. So if you see them anywhere, won't you lead me there? Wow, that is, that's beautiful. Okay. That's so... Now, I don't know that Johnny Mercer was even aware of this, but the really, really great lyricists, they're poets. They're tapped into the spirit of the age. Mm -hmm. So it's so clear that the imagery is right there. And actually, the first person that told me this was Roger White. Mm, famous Baha'i poet, for yeah. people don't And huge... Don't huge jazz fan mm -hmm. and really knew his stuff and he pointed this out to me so i always wanted to to record i always wanted to record skylark with that sensibility and mm. finally was able to do it on the album desire and what other themes did you explore on that album what other ways did you approach desire because there's flesh desire and well, lust desire and... yeah we do we do a version of fever Mm -hmm. You know, and we do a version of My Heart Belongs to Daddy about mm -hmm. somebody who's got a sugar daddy. While tearing off a game of golf, my, I may make a play for the caddy. But when I do, I don't follow through because my heart belongs to daddy. You know, mm -hmm. I may invite a boy some night. Um, so just all of this, there has to be fun in it. You know, so there's a bunch of stuff like that. So there's desire in the conventional sense, but there's also... Desire. There's there's a great song on that on that album by Dave Frischberg and Blossom Deary called Long Daddy Green, which I gotta start doing in concert again. Um, and it's about it's a I think it's really about fame and fortune uh, and and the desire for fame. Long Daddy Green is an old old friend. He hangs around the rainbow's end, dealing out dreams from a pot full of fortune and fame fanning the flame, hear him calling your name. Long Daddy Green is a fly-by-night. You turn around, he's out of sight. Seems he's your fair-weather friend and your foul-weather foe. The wind starts to blow, Daddy Green starts to go. The lies he tells aren't new to you, you're not naive. You know he won't be true to you, still you believe. Long Daddy Green is an old, old friend. He hangs around the rainbow's end 
Dealing out dreams from a pot full of fortune and fame. Fanning the flame. Hear him calling your name. It's so brilliant. Wow, that's so great. The chase the chase for the thing that's that's just beyond reach, that never satisfies. Uh, right. Again, with that theme of desire, that's that's exquisite. Yeah, and the greatest spiritual jazz of all time, of course, is John Coltrane. Who he's the man. He, you know, when I really got into jazz, uh, that was my way in, and and Love Supreme, and and, and in reading about his life, um, uh, it's extraordinary. Mm. His uh, his, his seeking to transcend. It's like he was trying to meet God through his saxophone. Yeah. Well, I think that I, you know, I remember reading in your, in your biography, in your memoir. Oh, you mean the bassoon king? In the, yes. The bassoon king, that very, very amusing. And, uh, okay. That's and surprisingly, that's all enough. right, Here okay, we go. whatever. Anyway. And I remember talking to you about this same thing that when you were really kind of, falling in love with drama and and the art of being an actor and the craft of doing a show together and the magic of what that really is. You said something like, you know, I and my little my little bohemian friends figured if we just did the right production of you know the three what, sisters ex- to the right in the right church basement to the ex- right 47 people like exactly. we could blow their minds yeah, and transform it. their hearts and and, and change yeah. them the way they completely see the world. Yes, exactly. And that you welcome to the world of jazz. I mean, for us, I mean, that's the kind of, uh, I, think, I think we're really lucky. Jazz musicians are really lucky because we don't get famous. And the people that love what we do and support what we do really love it. Mm-hmm. And they're not on board because we're the next new thing. And so we're always playing in the church basement, even if you're playing for a larger audience. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I was just in New York for a week and we had full houses every night and it was really, really nice. And But it's still a subset of the culture, a very small subset. Yeah. But they're very passionate and they really know what you're doing and they're really engaged in it. And it's really a, a special thing. So for us, that kind of mentality of how can we change um, the conversation by doing this music in a different way? Mm-hmm. That's kind of just jazz 101. And Coltrane kind of taught you that early on? kind of as a Well, definitely, definitely there's, there's something of Coltrane. I mean, I, I, among a lot of other people, including you, was very um, spiritually activated by listening to to John Coltrane. And I thought, wow, this is, you know, this is beyond just me understanding what's going on. I just can feel the power of what's happening. And I do think that that yearning for transcendence is core to the, the art of jazz. I think it's core to all art forms, but it's extremely obvious in jazz because of the dynamics of it being 
theme and variation, and the variation should be something that has never happened before wow. until that moment. Wow. And that is the standard of what and we're that's, supposed that's to do. And that's what we do in the theater, too. We, we like, you know, if you're, if you're cooking with gas and a high level of theater, you really want the show that night to be a show that has uh, an energy between the performer and the audience and the language and the music of the show and the dramatic and emotional aspects to be completely, uh, completely different. Yeah. There's, yeah. And there's an improvisational quality, even though, you know, for us, the notes are, are more scripted. Yeah. And I think that that's true of the highest level of all, all the arts and all the musics and, you know, everything. There is that sense of there being a living dynamic and think of the creative word, you know, that that's what Baha'u'llah says that when, when we read the writings, there is a creativity that creates something new that wasn't there before. It's more than just a dead letter. It's more than just the ideas. It's, it's the actual, it's a living thing. And I think jazz is the easiest of the arts to understand with this metaphor because you take um, a song, any song, and you take that song and you give it to these four people and then they engage with it in this way. And when my band arranges, it really is like a consultation. I mean, literally. And when we play, it's like a consultation. The first thing that happens is we have to be able to hear each other. We have to be able to listen to one another. Mm. And so quite literally, we're sitting there on the stage. And my concern is not, oh, can I hear me? It's can I hear Ray playing the drums really clearly? Can I hear Christian at the piano really clearly? Can I hear the bass? Can I hear all the range of the bass? Can I experience them at all of their different dynamic levels clearly? And they to me. So when we do sound checks, each one of us goes out into the house and listens to the other three. Mm. And that's how we do it. Um, so the very first thing, like in consultation, is being able to be uh, a listener. Mm -hmm. And that's 90% of it, is the hearing. And then, as an improviser, I have my idea. So I say, okay, here's my idea. But I have to be able to hear everybody else's idea. And my idea may work, mm -hmm. and everybody may jump onto that idea, or it may not. So do you guys have good consultations and bad consultations? Absolutely. But I would say we are, after 20 years, 23 years of doing it, our level of consultation is pretty high. Mm. It's a pretty well-oiled machine. And we know each other so well. Mm -hmm. So we know each of the strengths and, and deficits of the people involved and we know our, our tendencies and, and we know how to bring out the best in each of us, mm. you know, and that's a big part of the whole thing, you know, that, that you want to get off the stage and have everyone feel like they did their best. Well, and it must be very satisfying to the band, otherwise they wouldn't be with you for 23 years. That's right. And um, bands fall apart all the time, even in the jazz world. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're unique. Uh, and the, the thing, one of the things that I'm most proud of 
in, in the Grammy stuff is that we got a nomination as arrangers, all five of us, as collaborative arrangers, and it's never happened before. That Grammy, always, that nomination always goes to one person who conceived of something and did it. But ours was to all five of us. Wow, that's and, fantastic. And all of our names were on it, and that's just the way it is. Yeah. And, and it was what was that for? It was for uh, an arrangement we did for On Broadway. Mm -hmm. It has a lot of dogs and ponies and bells and whistles and weird things. But I remember how that arrangement came together. And absolutely every one of us had a, a serious role to play in it. And is there actual con consultation that happens too, where you guys sit down and maybe yeah. say a prayer or get yes. focused? And we do. Do you bring prayer into your... Yes. And, and you discuss, okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to record? How are we going to record it? What's the next spin? Yep. And we, we, do all, we, we do all of that. And that happened really gradually. I'd say 10 years into it, I was always praying before going on stage. And at some point, the guys said to me, will you play, pray with us? We don't want you to just pray over there. We want you to pray with us. And then it became this thing, you know, that had to happen. And, and I'm not the one that's going to remind everybody. So before we record every record, I recite a prayer uh, while everybody's there. And before we take the stage and the prayer that they like the best is actually um, George Townsend's prayer, uh, the hollow reed prayer, which isn't now we know it wasn't Abdul Baha, but it's still a great prayer. Uh, the Oh God, make of me a hollow reed mm -hmm. prayer. And uh, that's a prayer that and I'm sure. Does actors, your sax player like that one the best? Yeah. No. Sorry. <laughs> OK. And that's the other thing you should never do. Never say jazzy and never write jazz with the j in the shape of the saxophone <laughs> but they do that on all the jazz cruises on the ads for the jazz cruises it that doesn't make it less unacceptable have you done a jazz cruise yes i just did one last year is it was it fun or is it or is it hell it's it's, it's well both? it's both it's both i mean the such great musicians i mean last year uh, I was right down the hall from Phil Woods and I was doing it with Hubert Laws and Larry Koontz were the band that I was with. And, you know, every great performer is on the cruise. So it's really, really great because when you're not playing, you can go hear people and people come to hear you and it's, it's great. So it's heaven in that way, but it's also, you're stuck in a boat and I was kind of seasick and, and it's, it's pretty intense, you know, kind of, it's like being in a hotel kind of locked and. A, a big metal hotel that can sink and you can get sick in so there's like yeah. all these there's all these things of purell everywhere because you, right either so afraid you always hear that that's it's, it's it's weird it's it's weird yeah. but chipotle it's cool. and cruise ships for some reason with the viruses <laughs> with the nono viruses exactly um exactly. how did you become a baha'i i i became a baha'i when i was uh 18 um, I heard of the faith in Milwaukee where I grew up. My dad was a civil rights lawyer. He just passed away last month. And uh, I was raised an, an ex-Catholic and an anti-Catholic and an anti-Christian and sort of an atheist, pretty much an atheist. And when I first heard of the faith, I had a friend in high school who was a Baha'i from a Baha'i family, and I assumed that it would be nonsense and uh but the principles i couldn't really argue with i knew that the principles were right and wise and then as time went go went on i studied for about a, a year and i realized that that 
I had started to pray and I had started to be moved and I was stuck. So mm. that was it. And it was difficult for me because I was really raised in a family where, you know, the idea was religion is the opiate of the masses and we're protecting you from this unfortunate scourge. But both of my parents became big fans of the faith, watching what, um, what my life became because of it. And what were the aspects of the faith that drew you to it? The big one was racial unity, because my dad was a civil rights lawyer, as I said. And although he talked a lot about race unity and was involved very deeply in, in some serious civil rights stuff in, in um, Milwaukee, we lived in a white neighborhood and we didn't really have any black friends. And then suddenly in the Baha'i community, suddenly it was the first time I really was in a, a multiracial community. And the community in Milwaukee was so exemplary that the mayor of Milwaukee consulted with the Baha'i communities, uh, I think in the 80s, because there was a, a, a period of bad unrest and he wanted to find some community that had good representation of the different racial groups in Milwaukee and the Baha'is were it. They were the only community he could find, hmm. but they really were pretty darn exemplary. And so just being around the Baha'is and realizing, wow, something's really happening here. These people have actually done something a little bit. And uh, that was very impressive to me because I had never seen it anywhere else. So you were drawn to the racial unity aspects of the Baha'i faith and the social justice work that Baha'is were actualizing in their communities, which is awesome. And then it's 1981, you went to Boston, right? Did you go to music school there? Or? No, I actually started at uh, Boston University to study Russian language and literature. Why? Uh, well, because I'm a Baha'i and I thought... This is 1981. This is Cold War land. This is evil empire, mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan kind of years. And I thought this is how I would bring about the oneness of mankind. You know, you go to your first Baha'i meeting and you're told that the, the core teaching is oneness and the unity of all people. And what that meant to me at that time was learn Russian and try to create unity with our quote unquote enemy. Did you think you were going to maybe pioneer to Russia? And I thought maybe so. I thought maybe I would, you know, be a translator for the UN. I didn't know what I would do, mm -hmm. but I thought I would do it. Um, but a couple of things happened along the way. One was I wasn't really, really gifted as a, as a, as a Russian linguist. I mean, I knew people that were, you know, and those were the people that were, you know, translating uh, Pushkin for fun. And, <laughs> you know, in addition to reading Tolstoy in, in Russian, and I was reading all that stuff and doing all that stuff, but I, w I wasn't gifted. My accent was great. My Good. accent was really, uh, and whenever I meet Russians, the little bit I can say, I can say really well. And I, the first thing I say to them in Russian is my accent is good, but my... Say it. Uh, Maybe we have some Russian listeners. Parizhnashenia harasho slavarni zapas plocha which means my accent is good, but my pronunciation is good, but my, my um, uh, vocabulary, vocabulary yeah. is yeah. not good. So, yeah. and then they start talking really fast. I got three words for you. What? Russian jazz album. 
What do you think? Uh, uh, let's you could do a Russian language jazz album. It's a great idea. That's a great idea. No, okay. Yeah, no. Never mind. Uh, anyway, uh, well, I have one song. Yeah. Here we go. Высокий, темна, молодая и красивая девушка из Ипанимы гуляет, и когда она проходит, тот, кого она проходит, скажет Nice. All right, there you go. So that's that's my the girl from Irkutsk. Ex exactly. That's 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 the the sum total of my father's you know, a hundred plus grand education, mm -hmm. and that's the result of it. So how did you pivot from this Russian interest to uh, being a world famous jazz singer? Well, I fell in love with jazz at at Wesleyan, where I transferred after after um, BU. I went to Wesleyan and I had a summer job singing, uh, a singing cocktail waitress in uh, Wisconsin. I was a Heidel honey. That was my real claim to fame. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. I was a Heidel honey. I was do you have honey. a photo of you as a Heidel honey? Please. I do. I, I do. Okay. And I, We're going to put that on the and website. It, and it looks exactly like you think it would look. I look like the St. Pauli beer girl. Mm -hmm. wearing like, anyway, so that's what I was. And I remember the same year I was a Heidel honey, which was, and I'm serving drinks in this basement of this resort in Green Lake, Wisconsin is the same summer. I, I read the Dawnbreakers. I mean, how is that? That's fantastic. You, you, that could never be except when you're 19 mm -hmm. and just on fire. I was just on fire with the faith. And I'd read the Dawnbreakers for like four hours in the afternoon. And then I would go serve drinks to drunk Illinoisians and sing, Fine eyes have seen the glory. Anyway, we had three shows. Each one was tackier than the last. We had an Americana show, which we sang that for. We had a Broadway show. Way show one singular sensation every little step anyway and we had a pop show i don't even remember what we did for that i blocked it out mm -hmm. I, I can't even think about it but across the street there was a jazz trio and i realized when i went to see them it was like taking a musical bath and i thought how come everything they play has some kind of integrity to it i couldn't figure out what it was but i thought all the songs are good and nothing makes my skin crawl. Like nothing they're playing feels like they're trying to be somebody else. And um, and so off I went to to Wesleyan shortly after that and started singing jazz uh, because although I was getting my Russian language and literature degree, there was a guy who needed a singer to get a gig and he put up a sign and he taught me a gajillion songs. And within a couple of months, I had a little gig at a restaurant there. And so I, you really started in the trenches. Oh, yeah. You're kind of like, here, yeah. here's, a, here's a bunch of songs. You're going to learn these 15 yep. songs for tomorrow's concert. And uh, you just yeah. went for it. In fact, it, I didn't even know I was going for it. And now that I teach jazz, it's really funny because it's kind of a joke. The first jazz song I really learned was Lush Life, which is notorious. One of the hardest ones. One of the hardest songs in the world. And so I learned the melody correctly, but nobody sings it correctly. Even Ella didn't sing it correctly. Johnny Hartman doesn't sing it correctly. It's mm. this really weird melody, but I hadn't heard their versions. So I just learned it from my pianist teaching me the song and learned the song. So anyway, but to go back to the mystical element of how this works, I thought I was going to be uniting the world by speaking Russian. But what sort of happened was I realized that manifesting oneness in, in music, manifesting harmony, what made me fall in love with jazz was 
the complexity of the harmony. What made me fall in love with jazz was unity in diversity, was how tense the chords are, but how beautiful they are, because there's so many elements. And the only way to get them to sound good is to be really spot on and in tune and to really mm. listen mm. and really sink into that chord. You make me happy when the skies are gray. And you were saying earlier about the French word? Yeah, apparently I, I was noticing reading some French writings that uh, the word for unity or oneness, I believe, is unison. It looks just like unison. Mm. And so it's really, really interesting. We have all these metaphors about music that talk about uh, harmony and oneness and, and, and being um, in time, you know. And these things are actually manifested in the spiritual practice of doing music. And, and when I'm singing and when I'm singing with my band, we've all talked about this in the band, we're in a kind of state of meditation. We're in a state of meditation and I sit, I don't stand, and I sit partly because then my ear is on the same level of the ears of everybody in the band. We set up very, very close. So yeah, I've close. noticed that. You're always on a stool. You're never like out in front of yeah. them at a, mic, at a mic. No. And we sit so close that we can touch each other. And I often have the image that they're playing me. to sing my notes into the piano to 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 feel the vibration of my tone with mm. sim sympathetically vibrating with the the strings on the piano and and this is a something I, I teach students you know how to sing in tune like feel this hear this because it's not um a i always get confused which is subjective and which is objective it is I don't know what you're talking about. It, 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 the reality of being in tune is not... Is, is objective. It's, it's completely objective. Yes. And there that, is a note and yes, you can exactly. quantify it on a... You on can a, absolutely quantify it. And now that we do all of our recording with Pro Tools and everything, you've got this little line and the engineers are like, okay, it's either in tune or it's not. But when you get that sensation of being right in the center of that pitch mm -hmm. with another instrument, there's nothing like it. It's really a transcendent feeling. Mm. And when you are in kind of oneness with a group of musicians, and I get to play with such great musicians, and their level is so much higher than mine in so many ways, and they take you with them, and you just go, it's, it's an amazing thing. It's, I'm sure it's like being in a show with, with other people that mm -hmm. are working at a very high level, and you just feel carried away by Well, them. I was thinking, too, it's, it's like being at a great Baha'i gathering, or not even a Baha'i gathering, some kind of spiritual gathering or even a talk or spiritual concert where you feel in harmony and in unison with everyone there, whether through prayers or service or the depth of the discussion. And 
you know, the differences lift away and you, you feel, right. so there's, there's that, there's a beautiful mystical component where there are Baha'i quotes about music or thoughts or ideas about music that also led you on this path? You know, the interesting thing for me is that it's not so much the Baha'i quotes on music. It's the Baha'i quotes on life that inform music for me. Mm. So for example, the band and I talk a lot about the idea of losing yourself and being free of ego hmm. and how necessary yes and how necessary it is to be detached from the result to have a really good hmm. result and all the guys and I have talked about that syndrome and maybe this is the same when you're when you're acting but in as an improviser it's totally like this you're going along and you're 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 having a great a great tune with 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 the band and suddenly I think to myself wow this, that was really great. That was really cool what I just did. And then it's gone. It's, I'm, it is totally on. And then the next As soon thing, as you attach to it. Yeah. As soon as I start digging and myself. And you kind of like, and you kind of like, yeah. oh, that's as soon great. As, I, as soon as yeah. I dig myself and stop listening to the band and stop being of service to the music. Mm-hmm. So really, uh, one of the things that Christian Jacob said about arranging, which I love, he said, if you're going to do a good arrangement, your, your goal is to serve the soul of the song. Mm. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to do it just to be clever or cool or whatever. And, um, um, and I think that's really important. If you feel that you're of service to something, mm-hmm. uh, then, then you can manifest it. But if you're doing it because you want to be bitching, it's not going to feel right. Yeah, but come on. Look at all those great rock stars who wanted to be bitching and created some of the greatest music ever. You know what? That's jazz. Say that That's to Bon jazz. Jovi. That's... Okay, Sutton. Look, I'm not I'm, I'm not just, I'm, I'm not just... gonna disparage anyone. Everyone's got their thing, <laughs> you know? But I'm just saying in jazz, at least the way that I do it, and this is a very jazz sensibility, the way that I see it, because even you think of an, an album like, you know, Miles Davis kind of blue. Well, it's about Miles Davis, but it's every bit as much about Bill Evans on piano. Mm. You cannot, and half of the themes were written by him, not yeah. by Miles. And yeah. so it's the the coming together of equal voices in a musical conversation, mm. creating something new that hasn't been there before is endemic to what the definition of jazz is and how yeah. it works. So for us, a lot of the concepts in consultation and how it works um, are kind of jazz 101, but that's not to say that there are many bands that really work that way, because there aren't. And I'm really, really fortunate to be a part of one. Yeah. the uh, I talk about this sometimes with Baha'i friends or in gatherings, but there is that, that longing, you brought it up earlier, that longing for transcendence is something that is shared by three groups of people. Um, spiritual seekers, artists seeking to transcend the, just the limitations of self, whether it's here's an empty canvas and I'm going to create something that has never been there before. Um, I talk about God being the fashioner and there's an empty piece of paper and you put a, words in a certain order and they create a poem. You're emulating God, the divine gift of, of, of creation. You're emulating fashioning something or a sculpture or creating a song or a play or a character, whatever it is, that longing. And the other one, and the third group, of course, are the drug addicts. 
So I always think of addicts and addiction as people wanting that unity. They want that feeling of transcendence. They want to escape themselves for some deeper connection. So rather than looking down on them in any kind of judgment, and this is someone with a, a genetic weakness and a spiritual condition that makes them want to escape who they are and find something more. Well, uh, and there you have Charlie Parker and half of the early heroes of jazz because when they would get on stage and they would, they would be able to have that experience when they would have that transcendent experience of, of, uh, improvising and, and, and they, and they would have a loss of themselves. And I think in a lot of cases, the drug addiction was an attempt to recreate that feeling of transcendence of self. Um, and, and what happens, of course, as we know from how, how addiction works, the first couple of times it seems to work. It works. Yeah. Well, it kind of works actually when, when, when they think it works, mm -hmm. but when you actually listen to the recordings of people when they're straight or when they're, they're oh, messed yeah, up, it, yeah. it doesn't actually work, but they feel like it works. Yeah. And, um, and even if it does work, it, 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 it it ceases working really, really fast. In my band, and none of the other guys are Baha'is, but they say uh, always that they can't even have a glass of wine before a show because what we're doing uh, demands so much concentration that you can't be altered because there's a kind of uh, combination of precision of certain parts and then freedom in certain parts, but the precision's got to be there. You know, mm. and so that that's the thing is that the idea that jazz is just kind of like this free thing and you're just kind of doing what you feel is not it's not really. Yeah. And so that is also a spiritual metaphor that 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 something is a discipline. And every person in my band is tremendously disciplined. Mm. And they're and, and when you're on the road, it's almost like an athletic thing for me. Like I have to go to sleep right away and I have to need about 14 hours of vocal rest between shows. And I mean, it's like a thing. It's, wow. it's a, it's, I don't go out to lunch with people and hang. I mean, when I was young, I could, but now I just have to be really, really careful. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's the metaphors go on and on in terms of what, you know, preparing yourself to try to do this thing and to try to be, um, to be in a, a, a state of detachment and relaxed concentration. Wow, that's beautiful. Like a great athlete. Right. Right? They have to be in that same space. Yeah. yeah. Is there um, anyone in, in Baha'i history that you really admire and look up to and inspires you? No, I don't. I don't. I'm not inspired nope. by anyone. I nope, not not a one. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm a Dawnbreakers girl. I mean, those guys are my guys. You know, mm -hmm. it's, I'm uh, the Mullah Husseins, and you know that that period has uh, been uh, a period of great fascination for me. And I've often said that uh, I became a cultural Baha'i when I became a Baha'i, but I became a mystical and spiritual Baha'i when I read the Dawnbreakers. That was what that's did a, me in. I tell life. you, that's so interesting. I didn't know that we had that in common because when I came back to the Baha'i faith and decided to start looking into it, I, I first read the revelation of Baha'u'llah by Teherzadeh to kind of get back into it. And I, I didn't know really what I thought of it. And then a few years later, um, over Thanksgiving break, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to read the Dawnbreakers. And I read the entirety of the Dawnbreakers in four days over Thanksgiving. 
And that'll do you in. That's it. You're done. Yeah. Stick a fork in him. He's done. I just, I remember being at my mom's house up in, in Salem, Massachusetts and, and just plowing in and just reading, you know, hundreds of pages a day and only way you can do it being swept away, captivated by the, the heroism and the stories and and the sacrifice and, and just the feeling that's underneath it. Um, because you can study ideas all you want, but you have to be captivated by that feeling. Yeah. And when I read it, I remember thinking, okay, one of two things is true. Either there was a mass insanity, that a strain of insanity yeah. that afflicted you know, tens of thousands of people mm-hmm. at one time in one period, or Baha'u'llah is exactly who he says he is, mm-hmm. and this thing is for real. And, uh, and then once you're there, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're, you're doomed. I mean, you, there's nothing you can do. You can, you can be annoyed by the Baha'i community. You can be confused and troubled by certain things in the writings. You, you're never you can, annoyed by the Baha'i community, Tierney. Uh, what are you talking about? I, I, I never see him, so I don't get too annoyed. <laughs> that's, that's a terrible example you're setting for our <laughs> listeners. I just went to my reflection gathering last week. You reflected so at your reflection I gathering? I did. I reflected in everything. Do you have a favorite Baha'i quote that guides you? Truthfulness is the foundation of all human virtues. That's my favorite mm-hmm. Baha'i quote. Because I think it's one of the... I mean, I think everything in the Baha'i writings, everything in the Baha'i faith really is about balance. And I realize that um, for me... Uh, that shouldn't be my favorite quote, but I always feel like it's so needed in the world. Um, you know, that people just don't want to be honest about what's going on. And what, um, what Baha'i teaching or virtue do you struggle with the most? What do you, what's your biggest spiritual struggles these days? What, what are you working on? What am I working on? You know, I think the thing that I'm working on is the same thing that that I've been working on since I first became a Baha'i, but I'm I'm a little farther along with it, and so now I know how far I have to go. I think before I didn't even realize, and it's 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 the idea of falling in love with God and and being able to be absolutely obedient and knowing that it's the best thing for you, even though I know intellectually. Um, and as time has gone by, I've, I've gotten better because I've, in, in my way of thinking, kind of upped my spiritual game. I mean, for the last couple of years, I decided that every day I wanted to pretty much first thing say the long obligatory prayer and my 95 allow a pause because I'm too scattered and dopey and it's too easy for me to forget <laughs> it. And the short obligatory prayer just goes by too fast for my dopiness. Like I want to have to move my body in obedience to the Lord because I think I need that because I know what a dope I am. So I think when you're raised without faith and without prayer, and when prayer has to be something that you grow into as an adult, it's, it's a tough thing. 
And it's one of the reasons why we have to teach our children to be comfortable with it and to, to know that it's important. It's something that really bugs me about our culture, really. And I'm living, you know, here it's Los Angeles, 2016. But, and I tweeted this the other day, I said, people in Los Angeles love to meditate and hate to pray. And people don't pray. They might in Nebraska or Mississippi, and there may be some places where there's some serious prayer going on, but I feel like in the American cities right now, there's just, it's, it's looked on as weak to pray. And there's an arrogance to that philosophy um, that we think we know the best way and that we think that we're in charge. And we think yeah. that self-will and determinism is going to get us out of anything. So the idea of surrender, mm. of, of, of real serenity and by what you're talking about, turning over to an, an all-powerful, all-loving force, asking for help, um, and is, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the short obligatory prayer, you know, the, I always think Baha'u'llah, gives God two names in that prayer, you know, the, the help in peril and the self-subsisting. That's what God, that's what Baha'u'llah wants you to know about God in the prayer that you say every day, that he is the help in peril. He's there for you when you're in peril and he is self-subsisting. He also doesn't really need you. So, <laughs> you know, um, he's not dependent on you. He, um, yeah. but, uh, there's, there's a cultural arrogance going on, I think in people that, that don't, uh, that don't pray. Yeah, I think I think there definitely uh, was in me, and and it's something that I fight with. And I think that that way of looking at the world um, it, it isn't isn't very healthy. And I'm kind of now very attached to the long obligatory prayer um, because of the beautiful balance and combination in all the sections between. You're meditating on the idea that God is the the merciful, the compassionate. You know, the very first thing you look to the right and the left as if awaiting the mercy of God, mm. the 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 most merciful, the compassionate. I think that's what it is. Um, and so the very first thing is you're 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 told God's merciful, God's compassionate. You're waiting for that. Then you go through this this you know ten minute process or so where it, it, it almost makes me laugh because it's a little bit like like uh, Monty Python in uh, uh, what what is that in the is it life of Brian where, or I can't remember history of the world or whatever where the guy says where the priest comes and says God you're so huge you're so unbelievably huge we're all really <laughs> impressed down here now that's like the the tongue-in-cheek British snarky way of talking about it but in a sense, that is some. It, it, you really are kind of reading Baha'u'llah's description of how far God is from our ability to understand it, and meditating on the mm. fact that God has the right to do whatever God needs to do, and you're you're just this little tiny, 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 tiny thing. Has, have you noticed a change in your life when you've kind of focused this over the last couple of years of yeah. uh, more, more surrender to God's will, aligning your will with God's will? You know, it's really funny because I started doing it at a time when I was going through a lot of upheaval in my life and I was terrified 
I was waking up every day and I was just afraid of the future and whether I'd be out on the street and whether I'd have any money or whether I'd, you know, just the kind of just normal life terror that we all deal with uh, as we uh, grow up, we hope, and all of those things. And I thought, okay, I don't know what to do because I'm paralyzed with fear on a, on a daily basis. And so I, I decided to start my day that way. And all I can say is the fear went away. Wow. It just, I was not paralyzed by fear anymore. That's fantastic. I'm so happy to hear that. And Tierney, you do put to music uh, some Baha'i, uh, teach some Baha'i words. Well, I have here and there, but it's something that I really have to, to concentrate on and do in a serious way. I think we need I'm, a Baha'i devotional album from you. I, ne I need to do it. And I, I'm sorry that I haven't. But what I will say is, you know, I've, I've said in this, this interview, I've recited Baha'i writings on my regular secular albums. And so I've brought the Holy Word into my world. I mean, I had to get it okayed by the NSA and the whole nine yards, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so when people say, have you recorded a Baha'i album? I mean, I recorded you know, Amazing Grace on one of my last albums, you know, so I, I think I'm a little afraid of putting the creative word to music because I feel it deserves so much and I don't, I don't know that I'm worthy to do it. So, but I know I have to try because. Good. We have your commitment right here on Baha'i Blogcast, <laughs> but why don't you take us out with a little Baha'i writings set to music, maybe even a cappella right here and now. We'd love to uh, end this beautiful discussion with some of your vocal magic. Thank you so much, Tierney. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Rain. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. 
Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night. Thank you.